Now we're continuing uh, the grand scheme of things, a Bible study that's really just moving across the pages of Scripture, starting in Genesis. We're going to work our way, we hope, in a year to the book of Revelation, uh, building blocks that stack on top of each other, helping us with our understanding of of our Savior Jesus and and His gospel of good news. Uh, Tonight we're going to continue. This is our fifth lesson. Our lesson tonight's entitled, The God Who Remembers. Now, if you think about this, uh, in our Bible study, we've talked about the fact that our God is just. He is perfect in justice. That is who he is. That's part of his character. And because of that, he must judge sin. And so we've talked about that a couple of times. Uh, He could not, would not be just if he overlooked sin, if he did not judge sin. We might say, well, just let him go, or, well, this is one of my favorite folks. Uh, He is perfect in his justice. He upholds perfect justice, and so he must judge sin. Well, with that understanding, that's who he is. That's what he must do. We come to a very heavy thought tonight. Really, it's a pretty heavy thought, and that is we're trained to trust God in the good times, and we're trained to trust him in the bad times. Well, here's the interesting question. Can we trust God in times of judgment? Can we trust God in times of judgment? Will he be fair? Will he be unjust? Will he be prejudiced? We say, I don't like you anyway. Uh, Will he be prejudiced? Will he get carried away in anger? I I thought about that. Um, You ever punish your kids and you say, well, it's it's for their best and they'll do the good thing. But sometimes it's just straight in anger. And they do something, and I was thinking about this uh, this afternoon. One time I came in, and, and the boys had been fighting. The boys had been fighting. And I came in, and uh, Kel had a belt around Will's neck, and he's literally choking him in his bedroom. And I told him, get in there, and he, he slams his door. And I remember that episode. It turns into uh, really just anger, that you're just beating them in anger that, hey, they need to learn. Well, what about God? It says he can't stand sin. Does he get carried away? Is he mad at you over a particular thing? Can you trust him in that? And so our, our study tonight is going to answer that question. We're going to see some other things as well. Can you trust God in times of judgment? Our key point tonight, uh, in an uncertain world, and that's where we're at, Our hope is in a faithful God who is always trustworthy. You can trust him at all times. In an uncertain world, our hope is in a faithful God who is always trustworthy. Tonight, I'm going to read a whole bunch of verses, Genesis chapter 7, verse 16, all the way to chapter 9, verse 17. It is a Bible study, so we're going to read a whole bunch of Bible, and I thought about ways to break it out. Really, there's no good way except to say, here's what the verses are, and we're going to move through (coughs) the account. So Genesis chapter 7, beginning in verse 16, all the way to chapter 9, verse 17. Listen as I read. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Talking about the door of the ark. The Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark, so that it rose above the water. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, 
and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind of all that was on dry land and in and all whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Chapter 8, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Also the mountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed. And the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased at the turning point. In the 17th month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ariah. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the, top, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountain became visible. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made, and sent out a raven. And it flew here and there until water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him in the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days and again sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came in toward evening and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the, uh, the dove, but she did not return to him. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to him, said to himself, I, never, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest and cold and heat 
and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. That's the promise. Chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he is made. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is a sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you, and every living creature that is with you. For all successive generations, I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. That's our account. Those are our verses. We're going to look at some things, and there are kind of a couple of different things uh, that come out of our account. The first thing we're going to see and talk about is God's judgment. We're going to look at this account, and we're going to think about, we're going to talk about God's judgment. Now, now we're going to see four things, really, about God's judgment. The first thing is this. God's judgment is fierce. His judgment is fierce. It is always fierce. It has always been Fierce. That is the reality. That's the truth. Sometimes we like to paint uh, maybe a softer picture. Sometimes maybe we like to, to ease that up where people have an easier time accepting that. But the truth is God's judgment is fierce. And you read that. Uh, they suffocated. They drowned. It is a fierce judgment. Now, I thought about other times in the Bible. Uh, remember Achan when he, when he steals those things and hides them in his tent. Uh, the judgment is, is harsh and it's fierce. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, remember they're, they're hypocritical and they lie um, and they drop dead and then she drops dead and is carried out uh, of the meeting. Think about the cross. Uh, 
where, where God's wrath towards sin is poured out on Christ. That's fierce. That is harsh. And then think about the eternal judgment, eternal damnation, uh, the reality of the truth of hell, separation from God for eternity. God's judgment is fierce. Uh, this afternoon I was working on a Bible study in Revelation, and you go and read uh, those chapters in the middle of the book, and it, it's, uh, it's breathtaking. His, his judgment is fierce. We need to understand that. God's judgment is fierce. I, I, I was thinking about that this afternoon. Why is it fierce? And, and here's what I believe. God hates sin. The Bible says he abhors sin. Um, really, it's a burning hatred of sin. Uh, another place, sin is an abomination. There's a listing of abominations. Uh, God detests sin. And so his judgment of it is reflective of that, is fierce because of that. Uh, we excuse sin. We, we make soft uh, what we consider sin. God abhors sin, hates sin, and his judgment of sin is Fierce. It is fierce. Yet, here's the second point. Yet, it is not unjust. Now, we hear that and we think, well, that, that's, that's uh, too much. It is not unjust. It is earned. It is due. It fits the crime. Uh, go all the way back to Genesis. He says, if you do this thing in the day that you do it, you will surely die. He said it's death. It's, it is a fierce judgment. And so the first thing is this, God's judgment is fierce. Be sure of that. Second thing, however, it is just. It is not unjust. And now here's the next part of that. It is fierce. It is a just a judgment. It's not unjust. And then here's the next part of that. And it is always forewarned. It is always forewarned. That's an important thing. God doesn't hold us to a standard that he hasn't told us. He doesn't sneak up on us and surprise us with, with some judgment. We knew nothing about the standard of it. Now, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That is forewarned. We are told of that. Second Peter 2, 5, I'll, let me read this verse to you. It says, and, and God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought about a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now that's Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Now, it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now, that's an interesting thing. He built the ark 120 years um, but during that time, the Bible in, in the New Testament calls him a preacher of righteousness. So he's not just building the ark. He's telling folks, there is a God and he is just and you should repent. And so he is actually calling for righteousness, calling for repentance, a turning to God during that time. His judgment is always forewarned. Same, same as today. All right, so here's the pieces of that. His judgment is fierce, yet it is not unjust, and it is always forewarned. And then here's the fourth piece of that. And in God's grace, 
he makes a way of deliverance. And in God's grace, he makes a way of deliverance. Here's something we see hand in hand all the way through the pages of Scripture. Anytime that there is God's judgment, there is deliverance, salvation offered from God's judgment. We see that right here. Noah and his family, righteous in God's sight, faithful. Um, there is a way of salvation for them. That goes hand in hand with our God's justice and his judgment. There is always in his grace a way of deliverance, a way of salvation. That also shows up at the cross and, and, and really is pointing to the cross. There is never a judgment that there's not offered a way of salvation, a way of deliverance uh, also offered. I was, I was working through that and I thought of something that we saw when we went through the study in John. We saw it a couple times and it shows up here again and that is this. God has never forsaken a repentant person. And you can go from the start and go and count the promise all the way to the end. There's never been a person that said, God, I'm sorry that he didn't save them, that he doesn't deliver them. Now, we still have consequences for our sin, but God has never one time forsaken a repentant person. You know what the answer is? Turn to God. Trust God. Confess our sins. Repent and turn from our sins. There's never an account of a person that has been repentant, truly repentant toward God, that he has forsaken that person. So there is God's judgment. We see it in this account. It's foreshadowing the cross. We learn a lot about judgment in it. Four main truths. His judgment is fierce, yet it is not unjust. And it is always forewarned. And in God's grace, he made a way of deliverance. All right, from here, we're going to kind of take a turn for just a second and really look at, at, at part of the practical part of our story, of our account. Once again, right here, we get an opportunity to evaluate, um, can we trust God's word? Can we trust God's word? Now, we're building these building blocks. We're starting in Genesis, which is, which is of course, the starting place. But did he really create... Did he really create like that? Well, here we are in another place that we're going to have to evaluate. Can we trust God's word? Now, there's, a, there's several books out, but um, latest statistics, 85, 87% of people, young people that grew up in evangelical Christian churches are leaving their faith within five years of leaving their church, leaving their home. And whether that means they're going to work or going to college or, or going to the military, 85, 87% of folks that grew up in an evangelical Christian church are walking off from their faith within five years of leading their home. That's what the statistic says. Well, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? That sounds absurd. Here's the truth. The number one reason they do that is because they have the idea that they can't trust the Bible. They're being introduced to another, other thoughts and ideas, and they start to wonder, I can't trust the Bible. The Bible doesn't hold up. Well, think about it. Noah's Ark is another area that we could say, that doesn't seem likely, does it? Two of every animal, seven of some on an ark that he built for hunt. That doesn't, I mean, you can start to say, well, that doesn't sound likely, does it? That's not believable, is it? 
And then I thought about how that's been portrayed to us. My generation, you might agree, some of you are older, some of you are younger. How was Noah's Ark represented to you, told to you? It was in a storybook with a picture of an ark that was about the size of a bathtub and there's a giraffe sticking his head out the window like this and there's an elephant taking up too much room in the middle and then there's this little tiny bearded Noah in the front. And we paint that in our nurseries. We put that on our kids' walls. That's the picture. Well, all, all of a sudden, that, that's great when you're nine. What a, what a great picture. The giraffe's in there. But later you start to go, that doesn't seem believable. And I, I got to somewhere and they started talking about uh, psychology and sociology and this and that and, and scientific facts. And, and it looks like this is, is just a superstition and this is a crutch for weak people and you can't trust the Bible here and you can't trust the Bible there. And folks start to say, well, the only answer I have is the giraffe sticking his head out the window. This is another area, the, the Ark of Noah, this account, that we get to decide, is this the word of God? Is it trustworthy? Can we depend upon it? All right, let me give you a couple things right here. Was there a global flood, a worldwide flood? I sometimes hear great Christian people say, well, maybe it was just in that area. Or surely it couldn't have covered all the area because where would the water have gone after that? Or, and so maybe it was just that area. Maybe it was a myth. Maybe it's a superstition. I heard a guy, and he's supposed to be a smart guy, and he was saying, it's a book of fables that's not possible. There's good moral things to take from that, but no way did it actually happen. Was there really a global flood? Now, let me give you a couple things. First is this. This claims to be an eyewitness account. Now, I read a whole bunch of verses. Did you notice it said, and on this day of this month, and this day of this month, and this happened, and that happened? It doesn't say... It could have been like this, or at, at this time, this might have happened. It is given definite details. It's even given dates. It is claiming to be an eyewitness account. So either it's lying, or, or, or it's not dependable, or it's actually telling us it's an eyewitness account. Second thing we see, it is the testimony of both the Old and New Testaments. And so some people might say, well, that's an Old Testament story and, and they, you know, they just dreamed it up or, or it was passed down and it was an oral tradition and they got it all messed up. It is actually, we just read in, in 2 Peter, a New Testament account. So it is represented as truth in both the Old and New Testaments. And then that brings us to the last part and, and I could fill a book up here, but I'm just going to give you a couple things to think about. There is supporting evidence for a global flood, for this to be a true account. There, we're not just going, well, I'm going to take it on faith. I'm just going to trust. There is supporting evidence. Now, there's actually lots of it. There's actually books of it. There's actually volumes of it. But let me just give you a couple things to think about, and then we'll move back into our lesson. First thing is this, the fossil record supports a global flood. And we don't have to be shy to say that. The fossil record supports a global flood. Now, the first, the first thing we see is this. 
The fossil record doesn't look like the, the proponents of evolution would say that there's this in the fossil record and then there's these things and then there's four things and there's the, the fossil record to them should look like an upside down pyramid as things are developing and growing. The, the fossil record looks like not anything, not anything, not anything and then all of a sudden there's a layer of everything. So the fossil record seems to support um, not evolution but, but uh, some account that could uh, give evidence for that. Now tied to that is the truth about how fossils are made. And you have to think about this. In, in, our, in our summer camp here, we, we make fossils. The kids make fossils. How is a fossil made? When a cow dies in the field, it doesn't make a fossil. It dries up. It rots. Animals eat it. It dissolves. becomes dust. When, when, a, when an animal, when your dog is out somewhere and you, you bury it, you know what? Most likely it dissolves back into dust. It rains. It doesn't become a fossil. For a fossil to be made, there has to be a quick covering over, usually with mud or, or a lot of moisture involved. That's, so if your kid decides to make a fossil, you take a shell, you cover it over with mud, it dries, you pull it up, there's the imprint, there's the fossil. So the, the, the fossil would have to be a rapid covering over of the thing. There's actual pictures of a fish eating a fish. Well, for that to make a fossil, there has to be a fish eating a fish when an avalanche of mud covers it over and seals it off and makes a fossil. Otherwise, they would be separated or, or not existing at all. Another example, uh, the, the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is used uh, many, many times to say, there's millions of years involved here, long periods of time here. And they go, and you can actually read the plaque there at the Grand Canyon, and it says, a little bit of water over a long period of time is responsible for this hole that you're seeing. Well, do you know what can also do that? A lot of bit of water over a quick period of time can also do that. So it, may, it could be a trickle that goes on forever, or it could be, as the Bible would say, the, deeps of the, the depths of the earth break open, the, the clouds dump down, and a bunch of water over a short period of time. The fossil record, let me, let me read you this. The Weather Channel is, is not uh, confirming the Bible, but they, just, they have this article, and I guess they don't know it, but they're actually confirming the Bible. Here's what the Weather Channel says. The mighty Himalayas, also known as the roof of the world, rise up to an incredible height, disappearing into the clouds on some days. Some of the world's highest peaks are in the Himalayas, including Mount Everest, which at 29,029 feet is the highest mountain in the world. At these altitudes, the air is thin and the temperatures are extreme. The land is arid and brown and looks like it has been this way since the beginning of time. These mighty mountains are hundreds of miles away from the closest sea. So how is it possible that marine fossils have been found in multiple locations in the Himalayan mountains? And so you read that. Now they're going to go on and say uh, it was when the, the planets broke up and separated. Um, 
Sounds a lot like there was a flood that covered, it says 15 cubits higher than the highest mountain. And so, so that's some of the evidence as well. Now, there's tons of stuff we can look, look at, tons of stuff we can read. Uh, but understand, look it up. Uh, check out a book. There's lots of supporting evidence for a global flood. Here's another one, and I thought this was interesting, especially today. Almost all cultures, all cultures of many, many time periods have a story, an account of a flood. They have a flood account. Um, and, and so people say, well, this is just part of that. Well, this is just like, well, they have this account everywhere. And so somebody just took this and wrote it down in the Bible. Here is where the, 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 the flood account in China, Fuhi, I guess that's how you say that, he escaped a flood with his three sons and daughters and repopulated the earth. In Asia, Nama was a good man with three sons, and he was ordered by the Creator God to build a boat. These are, these are accounts, most of them started off as oral stories. The Choctaw Indians have a flood account. The Aztecs, a guy named Tappy, was an honorable and good man and responsible after a flood for repopulating the earth. Africa has an account. There's over 275 flood accounts from different cultures saying a similar story. Now, one of the charts showed the things that were similar in all the things. But what does that seem to say? There must be a common origin. Wouldn't it seem to say that? Now, let me give you an example. I think, well, that makes sense to me. They all have an account that's very similar. It must have a common origin. Today, this is pretty cool. Today, some of y'all might know, not know this, but some, most of y'all will know this. Today, about 10 something in the morning in Vernon, there was this giant boom. Did y'all hear that? Giant boom. And we were in the office and boom, there's a giant boom. Okay, within one hour, this is pretty funny. You can go back and look it up. Facebook was like 400 people said, what was that boom? And then people started saying, there was a boom on London Street. And somebody said there was a boom on Beaver Street. And somebody got mad and said, it was not on Beaver, it was in Lockett. There's a boom in Lockett. And then somebody said it was a sonic boom. And somebody else said, I grew up on Air Force Base and that was not a sonic boom. Uh, somebody else said they grew up on Air Force Base and it was a sonic boom, but it was on Cumberland Street. So you have all of these accounts and you got three fights going. Um, over this story. True story. That happened today. Now, I don't know if it's on Cumberland. I don't know if it's a sonic boom. And I don't know if it happened in Lockett. But what do I do know? There must have been a boom. That's what I got out of that. There must have been a boom. Well, you know what? If you got 275 accounts of a similar version of the same story, you know what there must have been? There must have been a global flood and an origin for the account. There is supporting Evidence. There's supporting evidence. All right, we're going to go back to this study and then we'll wrap it up here. <clears throat> Let's go back to the lesson. So, how do we find peace in this story? Now, this is a goofy story because we paint it in our nurseries and we, we put it on kids' stuff. But it's actually, if you look at it, not a very appealing story. 
God says all people on earth are wicked. Their thoughts are wicked all day long. And he's mad at them, and he says he's going to judge them. And he floods the, the world with water. And all people except those in the ark drown. Drown. I was, I don't, why would we paint that on our kids' nurseries? I don't know. But they literally drown because of the judgment of God. Rainbows. Uh, right? You know, the rainbow, that's a... We, it, it's actually a reminder of a pretty harsh deal that God's judgment is fierce. So how do we find peace in this account? Let me give you three ways. First way is this. The first way we find peace in this account is that there was a reset. A reset. Now think about it. The world was corrupt. It said they were evil in thought and deed. Everything they thought of, when they thought of things, they thought of ways to be more evil. Well, this event happens and sin is removed. The mark of sin is removed. The stain of sin is removed. When they come out of that ark, it's, a, it's about three years, or about a year and a month later. When they come out of that ark, guess what's gone? The wicked and corrupt generation that devises evil all day long. And any sign of that. It's gone. It's a reset button. It is a picture of the final judgment. Do you know through fire, through judgment, uh, sin is judged. Satan and his followers are cast in the lake of fire. Do you know what the next step after that is? And I saw coming from heaven a new, uh, from a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And there's no more sickness and no more sorrow and no more pain for the former things had passed away. And God shall wipe every tear from their eye and tabernacle amongst his people. The stain of sin and all sin is removed in God's judgment. There's a reset button. It's pointing to what's going to come. The next part, the rainbow. Now, this is very practical. In the rainbow, the Bible says, God promises to never again destroy the earth in this way. Now, I want you to be very sure. He has told us he will judge sin. He's told us how he will judge sin. He's told us what it will look like when he judges sin. But he's also told us he will never do it in this manner again. Now, I want to think about practically. Why does that matter practically? He's told us what to expect, told us he can't stay in sin. He's going to judge it. Those found outside of Christ will perish. But how do we find hope in this account? This is a very practical thing. If we didn't have those verses, and if we didn't have the rainbow, what would you do every time it started to rain? <laughs> You'd probably go, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew we messed up last weekend. I knew it got to be too much. Every time it rained, you'd get your kids and you put them on the second floor and say, I don't know. This may, this may be it. That's not how God works. He wants us to have peace, not as the world gives. He wants us not to have to worry. And so he says, when you see a rainbow, you don't have to worry every time it's going to rain that God's judgment. Can you imagine, today that sounds funny to us. Can you imagine 50 years after this, even seeing the rainbow? I bet they broke out in revival every time that raindrops started to fall. He gives us confidence. And he removes any fear. The last point is this. And it's a crazy word that takes a little bit to understand. It says, 
It started chapter 8, and God remembered Noah. And God remembered Noah. This is a big part of the account. When we read that, we might start to wonder, did God forget about Noah? Did he go, well, I got a guy somewhere in a boat, and it's been a while, I need to go check on him. Can God forget about Noah? Here's something bigger. Can he forget about you? Does he know where you're at? Has he forgotten about you? Well, I don't know. He may have forgotten about me. Here's what we learn from this account. It says he remembers Noah in the original language. It carries the meaning that he doesn't forget. He remembers. He is the God who remembers. He's not able to forget. He's infinite in knowledge, infinite in wisdom. He's not able to forget. And so he remembers. Yeah, he remembers. He never not remembers. He remembers. What that means is he doesn't break his word. What that means is he is faithful. And all of that means this, God is trustworthy. Our God is the God that remembers, not because he ever forgot, not because he can forget, but because of his nature, he does not forget. He is trustworthy. In this account, and and God uses that language in several places, God wants us to see him and he wants us to hold him as the God who remembers. He is faithful to his word. He is completely trustworthy. Today, who else is like that? And I don't, I don't care who you know, and I don't care how, there's some great people. Nobody is trustworthy like that. And there's nobody that won't, that won't lie, that won't break your heart, that won't let you down at some time. And God is showing us here. He is the God who is trustworthy always, faithful always, dependable always, not like anyone else. Not one word has proven false. You can't say that about a government. You can't say that about an academic book. Not one word can you come back and say, well, that one wasn't right. Maybe they made a mistake. Not one promise has failed. And so guess what? I I read that. I'm going to talk about that. It said it'll be cold and hot. Uh, Here it's the same week, uh, but it's talking about seasons. There'll be winter and summer. There'll be planting and harvest. There'll be night and day. Thousands of years now, has there ever been not a summer that that didn't follow a winter? Has there ever been a a seed that's planted that that doesn't naturally produce a harvest? Has there ever been a, a, a day that never ended, a night that didn't come? Not one promise has failed. Now, what all that means is this. In this account, yes, he promises a judgment. Yes, he, almost, he also promises a Savior, Jesus, and not one word has ever failed. Not one word washes away, and you can take it to the bank. We have hope settled, fixed, secure in our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the God that doesn't break promises, who always remembers. We're going to end right there. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. Glad you're here. We'll be dismissed. I'm going to ask if you'll stand, please. Let's pray. During Father, we come. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for this opportunity. We're thankful for your truth. We're thankful for your word. Most of all, we're thankful that it leads us to be confident in a God who remembers, 
who knows us, who sees us, who hasn't lied to us, and that is trustworthy and faithful. Most of all, in our salvation, secured not of any work that we would do, but by faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray that we live in confidence. We live in boldness. And I'm thankful that this, this message, this account, uh, builds that, produces that. I, I pray tonight thanking you for our kids uh, who are at the football field right now learning how big an ark would have been, the ark was. Um, I pray that they're building a faith that will stand, that can, that can endure the, the, the attack of a world set against it. And I pray that it brings peace and trust in Jesus Christ. I pray for our youth right now that are meeting, uh, hearing about your grace and your trustworthiness. Uh, the same thing revealed in this account. I pray that you, you speak to them and I pray that a foundation is laid there as well. Pray for our other classes that are meeting. Pray for these that are listening on the internet. I pray for each person here tonight. Um, let us leave different. Let us leave confident. Uh, let us carry your name high to a lost and, and suffering world. Lord, we come and we just tell you we're thankful for our church. We're thankful for your hand in it. We're thankful for fried chicken and mashed potatoes and, and all the great stuff. We're thankful for fellowship and we're thankful for your word. We praise you for it. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.